For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we are gathered here this morning not because we are more wise than others or more worthy than others or even more fortunate than others, but we believe we were drawn here by your Holy Spirit to gather with the body of Christ to worship the one true God and hear from your word. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would help us put away all distractions, anything that would hinder us from hearing your voice. Spirit, use this text to encourage us to challenge us, to shape us in the image of Jesus Christ, that we may reflect his character more clearly to one another and to the watching world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2001, rookie kicker Bill Gramatica of the Arizona Cardinals lined up for a 43-yard field goal in the first quarter of their game against the New York Giants. The ball was snapped, the hold was good, and he kicked it perfectly through the uprights. However, after making the field goal, instead of high-fiving his teammates who helped him make the kick, instead, he immediately ran away from his teammates, held up his hands excitedly, jumped in the air, fist-pumped, landed on his leg awkwardly, and tore his ACL. Yes, it's unfortunate. It's a little excessive celebration. And this display of pride not only hurt himself, as we see here, but it hurt his team as their starting kicker was now out for the rest of the season. There is a reason coaches use the cliche, there is no I in team. Coaches know that a team will accomplish more if all the players put the team first. If a single player, no matter how talented, is focused primarily on their own personal success and glory, 
more often than not, they will ultimately hurt the team and will accomplish less with the gifts that they've been given. Just as a team suffers when someone elevates themselves above the rest, so the church suffers and their gospel witness is hindered when Christians forget that we are members of a body, a spiritual body that God has sovereignly crafted together, a body that needs every member to function according to God's grand design. As we come to our text this morning, we'll see that this is what the church in Corinth had forgotten and that we can often forget today that we are members of a body together. If you were here with us uh, over Fourth of July weekend, we were introduced to the Corinthian church and learned that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter in large part to address divisions that were forming within the members of the church. Chapter 1, we saw Paul address Christians who were grouping themselves together based on their preferred preachers. They were borrowing the values of the world and acting like people of the culture rather than people of the cross. Paul rebuked them and calls the church to remember their story of salvation, that they were not saved because of the eloquence of a preacher or their status in society, but God saved them through the preaching of the word of the cross, a message that was folly to the world. And as a church, we learn that if we are to avoid drifting away from the mission of leading people to know and trust Jesus, we must keep the cross of Christ central the message of the gospel central in all our ministries and in our preaching. Yet as the letter of the Corinthians unfolds, we learn that there was more sources of division in their body. Today in 1 Corinthians 12, we'll see in part how Paul responds to the divisions being created due to their distorted understanding of their spiritual gifts. Specifically, we'll see that the Corinthians were elevating certain people with certain gifts while dismissing other gifts of the Spirit, failing to see the importance of every member of the body. Now, I don't have time today to do a deep dive on more spicy topics and questions related to spiritual gifts, but I would encourage you, we do have a core class coming up in the fall, so keep an eye out for that, and I will try to address all those questions there. No, but this morning, I want us to examine Paul's teaching and recognize that we are the body of Christ, and the diverse gifts the Holy Spirit gives to the church are not meant to lead to division, but to display our unity in the Spirit as we love and care for one another as we await our Lord Jesus' return. I've divided our passage into three parts. First, uh, in 12 and 13, we'll look at our unity in the Spirit unity in the spirit. Number two, our unity in diversity, verses 14 through 24. And then finally, our unity on display in verses 25 through 26. First two points will be longer, last part will be short. And my prayer today is that all of us would rejoice in the unity that we have in the spirit of God and that we would leave here eager to use those gifts that God has wisely apportioned to each of us for the good of the church and the body of Christ. Let's look at the foundation of our unity in verses 12 to 13 with me, our unity in the Spirit. Look at verse 12 again. For just as the one body, the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul is continuing his discussion on spiritual gifts that he actually starts in verse 1 through 11. Uh, and before addressing specifics, he takes the time to remind them of their foundation of their unity. And he does so through the use of a metaphor that he will continue throughout this passage. He likens the church to a body. Just as we have one body made of many parts, arms, ears, eyes, so too Christians are not isolated individuals, but individual members of a body. And this is no ordinary body. This is the body of Christ. If you look at verse 12 closely, you can see that it doesn't end the way you may expect it. Look again carefully with, with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You'd expect Paul to say, so it is with the church. But since Paul understands that there is an intimate connection between Christ and the church, he can use Christ kind of as a shorthand way of saying, so it is with Christ, parentheses, whose body is the church made up of many members. Paul pictures the church not as the body of Christians, but as the body of Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that the church is Christ or that we are the literal physical embodiment of Christ. We do not reincarnate Christ. Nevertheless, he is saying something very profound. Christ identifies himself uniquely with his church, the people he purchased with his blood on the cross. And as Christ's body, we represent him here on earth until he returns. And Paul knew this connection between Christ and his church all too well. If you recall, before he knew Jesus, Paul was persecuting Christians. And one day, the risen Lord, Jesus, stopped him on the way to Damascus and said to him in Acts 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Right? Did he say that? No. What did he say? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies himself with his people that when the church is being persecuted, Christ says that he is being persecuted. So this begs the question, how is this body of Christ assembled? How does one become a member of the body of Christ? How do we know that Jesus identifies with us in that way? We see in verse 13 that the body of Christ is brought together, united by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, there's actually a lot to unpack in this one verse, and so we'll work through it just by answering some, some questions. This is important as we lay the foundation. First question is, what does it mean to be baptized in one spirit? Well, we, we first hear about being baptized with the Spirit, actually from John the Baptist, as he points his followers away from himself and to Jesus. He says in Mark 1, I baptize you with water, but he, that being Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing statement for the Old Testament foretold a day when God's presence would no longer be confined to a place or only with a couple certain people, but that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all of God's people. 
And God uses John the Baptist to announce that with the dawning of the incarnation of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, that that time had come. Jesus would not be baptizing people with water, but he would be making a way for the presence of God to dwell with believers through the giving and baptizing of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus finishes his work of redemption on the cross and was raised again from the dead, the way for sinful people to have access into the presence of God was now open, that those who place their faith in his atoning work for their sins would receive the sealing of the promised Holy Spirit. We see on the day of Pentecost, we see God makes good on his promise as the Holy Spirit is poured out on those who believed. God's people were no longer separated from his presence. God's people were no longer set apart by circumcision or other physical barriers, but set apart by their baptism in the Holy Spirit. That maybe brings up another question. How should we understand this word baptism as it relates to receiving the Holy Spirit? I can imagine many of us maybe are, are, when we hear the word baptism, we automatically think of our practice of water baptism, or maybe you think of your own baptism. Baptism simply means to immerse. And at conversion, Jesus spiritually plunges a person into the Holy Spirit so that a believer is immersed and filled with the Holy Spirit. They are born again by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, to be clear, our baptism in the Spirit is a gift from God. It cannot be manipulated or coerced. It is an act of God's will, not an act of the will of man. However, it is not completely removed from our practice of water baptism that we practice here at Castling Community Church. We believe as a church that water baptism should follow as soon as possible after someone's clear repentance of faith and evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. Water baptism does not give you the Holy Spirit. Rather, water baptism is a sign received after one has been baptized with the Holy Spirit at conversion. Holy Spirit baptism is a necessary prerequisite for receiving water baptism. If you've seen a baptism here at Castleton, uh, we'll say this before we baptize. We'll say, on your public confession of faith and evidence of a changed life, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's important to note, too, just in the context of the early church, in the early days of the church, almost all Christians were baptized almost immediately after their conversion, signifying their beginning in the Christian life. So that's why Paul, I think, sees no further reason to explain the difference here between spirit baptism and water baptism that we see elsewhere in Scripture. Lastly, last question here, the question is of what do we do with the phrase, and we are made to drink of one spirit? Uh, Some traditions believe Paul is talking here about a second experience of the Spirit, one that is only experienced by a select few believers. I think we can just see plainly here that Paul teaches that all were baptized into one body and all were made to drink of one Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit and the drinking of one Spirit are experienced by all who have trusted in Christ at the moment of conversion. It's not a different experience for others. Commentators will agree that these are parallel statements further, furthering the image of being immersed and filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Um, our, our family just finished reading the Chronicles of Narnia series, and this image of being immersed and drinking made me think of this scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, as King Caspian is taking his crew towards Aslan's country, uh, they recognize that the water was no longer salty, but it was sweet. It was refreshing both to swim in, that you could even drink it as well. They could be immersed in it, and they could be filled up with it as they drank from it. And I think this image that Paul is conveying here in verse 13 makes it very clear that the one Christians are immersed into is the one that we drink from. Therefore, Paul's main point is that we are made members of the body of Christ through the oneness of the Holy Spirit who is given to all who believe. It's the Spirit of Christ that unites Jews and Greeks. Slaves are free. It's the Spirit of Christ that calls us to worship together today and direct our praise to God. Therefore, the foundation of our unity in the body of Christ is not our ethnic or cultural heritage or economic status or our opinions on tertiary issues or even our love for the Indiana State Fair. But the foundation of our unity is supernaturally forged by the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Spirit, we don't have unity. What polarizes the world should not polarize the church, for we have unity in the Spirit. And as we'll see later, our unity in the Spirit does not remove our distinctives, but now informs and displays even more powerfully the beautiful ways God has made us and gifted us together as his body. I think it's important for us to realize that unity in the body of Christ is not a feeling or something that we can manufacture. It is not something we create. It is a reality that has already been created by the Holy Spirit. But we, unfortunately, we forget this all the time. And we can be deceived into thinking that we need to lay a different foundation for unity when we are uncomfortable or when we realize, oh, not everybody in the body of Christ looks like me or thinks exactly like I do on every issue. Therefore, Paul's focus when trying to address the divisions in the church is not to lay a new foundation for unity or to give them a unity booster shot that will someday wear off over time. No, he, he brings them back to the supernatural unity that bonds every Christian and a unity that is made visible in the local church. While we are all unified in the spirit in one body, as I mentioned, we are still not all the same, which leads us to our second point, our unity in diversity. Look back at verses 14 with me and following. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I think we can see quite plainly through Paul's illustration of what is happening inside the church in Corinth. There seems to be members of the body who are being tempted to think that because they are not gifted in the same way as others, that they are not just unimportant to the body, but they are believing that they are not even part of the body. 
They see the difference in giftings and roles in the church and conclude that they're not needed, seemingly because they think their gifts are not important. When we see Paul combat this line of thinking by giving an absurd picture of a body that is only composed of eyeballs or ears. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? A body made up of eyeballs might be really good at seeing, but it would utterly fail to hear and to smell and to taste. Just imagine how those eyeballs would feel during allergy season, and they've got no arms to put the eye drops in. It's, it's, it's going to be a mess. Diversity in the body of Christ, Christians with a variety of different gifts, does not hinder the body, but helps the body function properly. Both eyes and ears, hands and feet, have their assigned role in the body, and without them the body becomes disabled. As your church staff, we have experienced God's wisdom and blessing in bringing people with the same spirit with different and diversity of gifts together to work together for the common goal of leading people to know and trust Jesus. We've seen it in our body as we see both kids and adults from all generations helping one another serve the body. And we see it in our staff. I cannot do what Tommy and Luke do, and I cannot do my job without Jim and Lucas doing their jobs. Our church would suffer without Matt and Jenny using their gifts and we'd suffer if everyone wanted everyone else's jobs uh, or failed to do their own. And we praise God that it is not that way. We see God's wonderful design even in our staff. And we've praised the Lord multiple times. And myself, pray, this week as I'm preparing the sermon, praise God for Tommy and praise God for the diverse gifts that God gives uh, uh, in our staff and the unity that we share in the Spirit. The implication of Paul's teaching is clear there is no unimportant person in the body of Christ. Even small, seemingly insignificant parts of the body are essential to the body of Christ. And we know this. If you ever hurt your stub your pinky toe or something like that and you can't walk, it's like, oh, that, that little piece actually, that was really important. Now, now, we may believe this with our heads. We may be able to say, oh, yeah, there's no unimportant people. But it is hard to live like that's true. It's hard to believe that we are valuable members of the body when we start comparing ourselves to others and judge ourselves as less important. It's so easy to fall into bitterness and to jealousy when we see others in the ways that we desire. Therefore, how do we fight these temptations and discontentment with our gifts and roles? Well, Paul gives us a path in verse 18 to 20. He says, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. We can fight feelings of inferiority with the truth. The truth that God is the giver of all the gifts, and God has composed the body with a diversity of gifts just the way he wanted. Paul is reiterating exactly what he said in chapter 12, verses 4 to 7. It should be on the screen behind me when he says this. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all 
in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And then if you look at verse 12, he says, It is the Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So God is the author of our gifts. He is the one who portions out to each gift by according to his wisdom. And therefore, if we are tempted to grumble about our gifts, we must realize what we are saying. We are saying in practice that we think, ah, God, you could have done a better job. You could have done a better job with me. We begin to judge God and even judge ourselves through worldly wisdom rather than receiving God's wisdom from above. The unity and diversity shared in the body of Christ ought to lead us to praise, for through it God's wisdom is made known to a watching world when all these different gifts work together well for the glory of Him who gave them. We have seen the world try to manufacture unity and diversity according to human wisdom. And while we can say there may be some merit in this effort, ultimately diversity without the foundation of unity in the Holy Spirit will always fail. Diversity manufactured by man will elevate man's wisdom and will one day be exposed as folly. But diversity that is created by the power of the Spirit elevates and glorifies God's wisdom and His design. Therefore, we need to guard against the temptation of thinking that we are less than in the body just because our gifts maybe are different or not easily recognized by first recognizing God's wisdom and bringing a diverse group of people together for His glory and the good of one another. We can also fight this feeling of feeling less than in the body by exercising your gifts, no matter how insignificant you may think they may be, and asking the Lord to help you see your role in the body. And if you're here and you're not sure what gifts God has given you, I'm telling you this morning, you don't need to wait for someone to tell you what those gifts are. You don't need to wait on the results of a spiritual gifts assessment. You could start by fulfilling the command that God gives all the members of the church, regardless of their gifting. The command to serve one another, to encourage one another, and to pray for one another. Just to name a few of them. You may feel very weak. You may feel, feel useless or not as useful as you once were in the body. But we have to remember that one of the most useful things, if not the most useful thing we can do, is call upon the King of Kings on behalf of your brother and sisters in Christ in prayer. Take your member directory. Pray through it. Ask the Lord. Uh, look through the bulletin. Look at the prayer requests that are in there. And know that when you pray, you are edifying the body. And then you can pray that God would help you to see the way in which your prayers are helping and encouraging one another. If you're looking for more specific ways to serve, uh, there are plenty of ways that we could show you that. Again, one of the best ways to do that is to ask, hey, what's, where's the, the biggest need? And you've probably heard us say this before, but right now the biggest need is in a kids' ministry. that We're, we're trying to plan this fall, uh, starting in August, to fill every classroom downstairs with kids. And now, you may find out after serving for a little bit, oh, this, is, this ain't for me. Uh, and that's okay. There are other places to serve. But if you don't try, you don't know. Uh, and so I would encourage you that you really will never, you only really will recognize your vital purpose in the body of Christ 
if you exercise your gifts in the body by faith. Again, there is no inferior or unimportant person in the body of Christ. And to think that, or to cut yourself off from the body, leaves the body weak and ineffective. On the flip side, Paul continues this metaphor we see here in verse 20 through 24, that our unity in diversity is threatened when a member of the body sees themselves as superior. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those parts of the body we think as less honorable, we bestow a greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now, I don't know how many people from Indiana follow baseball. I know, I know a few of you, you do. But if you haven't noticed, there's something actually that's happening in Major League Baseball that has not been seen for over a hundred years. There is a player, his name is Shohei Otani. He plays for the Los Angeles Angels, and he both hits and he pitches for his team. And he does both incredibly well. He currently leads uh, the league in home runs and is top five in the league in strikeouts. He only gives up three runs a game. He is truly a generational talent. No one is doing this. Yet, his team isn't great. Uh, they're a middle-of-the-pack team, haven't made the playoffs in a few years. They're struggling even now to make the playoffs for a 500 team. So he's the best player in baseball has seen for 100 years, and yet his team cannot make the playoffs just because of his talents. He is clearly the superior player on the team, but even he can't win without the team's help. As Paul continues his body metaphor, he turns to address the, those in the church who would see themselves as superior and would regard others as dispensable. And he rebukes them and teaches them that even those regarded as weak members in the body are not just you know, helpful, but he says they are indispensable. They cannot be dispensed with. They are essential to the body's health. Pride has no place, no standing in the body of Christ. For as we've already seen, every gift that we've been given is from the Lord. What does pride do? Pride will divide the body, will isolate members from one another. Pride makes us feel self-sufficient and sees others as a hurdle to avoid rather than a blessing. Pride makes us entitled to praise and to glory that rather should go to God alone. Now, to be sure, Paul acknowledges that some members of the body are given greater honor because their gifts are just more presentable, meaning that there are some gifts that are just more visible than others. Yet these presentable gifts, gifts that are more easily honored in the body, does not nullify the necessity and the honor that is due to those gifts and contributions that often go unnoticed. Paul's teaching that the parts of the body that seem weaker, the parts of the body we don't show to the world, are still necessary for the body to function, cannot be dispensed, but they are in fact indispensable. So whether you see yourself as someone who has gifts that are easily honored, like teaching, 
or you have gifts that often go unnoticed, like, like being a prayer warrior. We need to put off the feelings of both superiority and inferiority. Rather, as Paul says in Romans 12, we ought to think of ourselves not, as, not highly, more highly than we ought to, but rather with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We all have the same spirit, but we are not all the same, and that's a good thing. Therefore, we should seek to steward the gifts that God has given us, whether they get public honor from men or secret honor from God. We steward our gifts for the glory of the Lord and the good of His church, walking in step with the unity that God has given us through His Spirit. So we've seen our foundation of unity in the Spirit. We've seen our unity in diversity as all of our members work together for the common good. And lastly, Paul gives us his purpose and a picture of what a unified, healthy body of Christ looks like. Look at verses 24 through 25 and our unity on display. Paul says, That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Anytime we go to the doctor, there are certain signs the doctor is looking for to determine whether or not our bodies are healthy, right? They check our temperature, check our blood pressure, check our weight, and they ask a whole bunch of questions, right? And making sure all the systems of the body are working properly. And these, all these integrator, integrators provide a picture of either a healthy body or one that is unhealthy. And I think here in these verses, Paul gives us some indicators to help us determine whether the body of Christ is functioning properly, whether or not the church has received his teaching and is beginning to display the unity that they have in the Spirit. He says a healthy congregation is first not marked by division, but by loving care for one another. That all the members, whether the members are strong or weak, whether they have gifts uh, that are more public or more hidden, that they all have the same loving care for one another. I think this loving care is expressly seen in when one member suffers, all the members suffer. And when one rejoices, they all rejoice together. Church, I just want to encourage you, uh, I often get the privilege of seeing the loving care of our church in action. There have been, in our time, we've been a church for six years or so, um, only three years or so officially in that sense, and even in that short time, we have seen some deep moments of suffering that our members have had to endure. And I have seen tangible evidence of our body grieving together and suffering well together. And we, we suffer well together, not just because I think, you know, the Lord's given us some, there's some compassionate people here, though that's true, but it's because God has knitted us together by His Spirit. The fact that we feel the burdens of our brothers and sisters when prayer requests are shared, even from the pulpit, I, I sometimes hear an audible, oh, oh. And I think that is the Spirit groaning in us, grieving with those when we hear members who are suffering. 
It's evidence of the fact that the body is, body is functioning as it should. And on the flip side, Paul says that we show our union together when we rejoice when someone in our body is honored rather than given to bitterness and jealousy. And I think this may be even more difficult, a more difficult call than the call to suffer together. For we are often called to rejoice with those who are receiving honor or experiencing a joy that you yourselves have longed for yourself. And I know many of you have attended wedding after wedding or baby shower after baby shower with joy, even though the Lord in His providence has not granted to you the same gift. If that's you, I, I want you to know that when you choose to rejoice with those who rejoice, even in your own suffering, God is using your faithful witness to display His supernatural work of the Spirit. Your witness reminds us all that our fellowship is not man-made, but is supernaturally forged by God. Brothers and sisters, when you rejoice with those who rejoice, you increase the faith of your brothers and sisters, and you help us all to trust in Christ in seasons of strength and in seasons of weakness. When the body suffers together and rejoices together, it displays a unity that is uncommon to the world. It displays a love that cannot be produced through human effort, but only by the Spirit of God working in His people. It's a love that points the world not to, to us, but points them to Jesus. Jesus who suffered for us that we might share in His eternal joy. If you're a member of this church, I hope that you have seen and have felt the care of and love of this body of Christ together here at Castling Community Church. And I hope that you know that every one of you is indispensable and that it's, it, that it's an essential for the health of our congregation to use your gifts in whatever they may be, to encourage and to care for your brothers and sisters. And it is really easy, especially in our culture, to come every Sunday morning and see it as an event, an event to be received and kind of judge on how, what you got out of today, rather than, I think as Paul sees it, that we get the opportunity every Sunday to gather together to love one another, to build one another up. And, and I hope that in the morning when you're thinking of, should I come to church, or I wonder who's preaching today, or what songs we're going to sing, I hope you, instead of thinking that, I want you to think of, who do I get to see today? What, what person might need a conversation with me today? Who's, who's that person that I need an update on and that I may not see for a couple weeks and hope that they're there so that I can be ready to encourage them? You want a motivator to get up to church and say, think of the people. Think of the people that God will use in your life to encourage you and that you can be encouragement to them. We need one another. We need to be encouraged as we eagerly look forward to the day that is to come. The day when all Christians from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be united around the throne of God in the new heavens and in the new earth. But until that day, this is the picture of that day to come. And this is a reminder to all of us. And so I would encourage you that until that day, 
Would you be on guard against anything that would seek to threaten the unity of the body of Christ and that you would be eager to maintain our unity in the spirit and the bond of peace? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inviting us together by your spirit as the body of Christ today to hear your word. We pray that you would help us exercise the gifts that you have given us that we may bless our fellow brothers and sisters and care for one another as you have designed us to do. Would, would our unity in the Spirit be on display? That it would increase our faith and increase our witness to a watching world. And we also pray that if there's anyone here who has not known the fellowship of the Spirit by faith, that today they would pledge their allegiance to King Jesus and receive the promised Holy Spirit and be joined together with our body together. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity. We pray all this for your glory and for the good of your body. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.